you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte after getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. That's chime.com slash goals24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Chasing the Moon on PBS. Tune in or stream Monday, July 8th at 9, 8 central, only on PBS. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, how are you? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, June 26th. Today, what happens next with the crisis on the border? Kirsten Gillibrand's evolving stance on guns and unconventional gifts on wedding registries. There has been a crisis at the border for several months. It is deeply upsetting. Many aspects of it are very disturbing to the public, but the public attention isn't always focused on it. And what we've seen is these kind of waves of, of anger building and then people being you know, distracted once again and not really following through and applying the kind of pressure, for example, on lawmakers that it would take to actually do something that would change it in a significant way. I'm Nick Miroff. I cover immigration enforcement and the Department of Homeland Security for The Washington Post. In this case, there's this image of the father and, and two-year-old daughter dead after drowning in the Rio Grande that is now circulating, that has horrified a lot of people. But I, you know, I would also point out that drownings have been going on in the river for months now. I mean, they're always happening, but the, this particular period, this, this giant migration wave that we're still in the middle of has been especially deadly for children. Um, but, you know, again, it's often an image like this that uh, really crystallizes things for people. I think a lot of the outrage that we've seen as well has come from the fact that there's been more information about what is happening in detention centers, particularly when it comes to children. What is our understanding now of how bad things are for people who are stuck in these detention facilities on the border? Well, it's actually a problem of both more information and less context. Because in general, reporters are not allowed to take pictures inside Border Patrol stations and these detention facilities. So the reports that we often receive are from activists and from advocacy groups that uh, go into these into these centers and, and then describe what they see. Last week, I was in the largest Border Patrol holding facility along the entire border in McAllen, the central processing center, the one with the notorious cages, and it was the worst I'd ever seen it. But I don't have pictures to share with our readers. You know, we weren't allowed to take photographs. And so in this gulf between what people are hearing about the way things are and what they're able to see, you know, I think that is just making everyone even more upset. What, what did you see there? What makes it the worst that you've ever seen? So when I was there, there were more than 2,000 people crammed inside the chain link holding pens. That is far beyond the capacity that I'd seen on previous visits to that facility. And children 
spending far beyond the 72-hour court-mandated period with no showers, with, you know, very little entertainment or recreation or anything at all, it's really become, you know, a humanitarian nightmare in there. And so I, I spoke to, you know, one group of teenage boys, for example, from El Salvador, who said they'd been there five days and that there, there were other teens in there with them that had been there eight days. And, uh, you know, one, one um, 16-year-old boy started crying and telling me he just wanted to go home to his mom. And could they let him? In? And at one point, you know, a border patrol agent came over and took his, took his name. And, you know, I got the impression they were doing that because I was there and I was asking about it. But he's in for a long odyssey, potentially, because he can't. The truth is they can't just let him, you know, he's a minor. He has to go into the custody of HHS. And HHS is not taking these minors and these children fast enough. They're not placing them. So they're backing up in the border patrol stations, in these holding facilities, that are never, they're never meant to have, you know, children for this long. And we've come to this moment where everyone, Democrats and Republicans, recognize that this is a major humanitarian crisis that needs to be dealt with. But there are lots of different ideas on what to do. So what is the government trying to do to deal with this, both the White House and also Congress? Okay, so right now we're at a very pivotal moment because we have this supplemental funding package pending before Congress that both the House and Senate are trying to reconcile that would go a long way toward alleviating a lot of the worst parts of the humanitarian crisis at the border. At the same time, the president has launched his reelection campaign with this promise to deport millions of people and has this what they call family operation basically ready to go. And it would target thousands of families with deportation orders in major U.S. cities the plan has been on the back burner for several months and has been a source of intense debate within DHS and Immigration and Customs Enforcement at ICE. And the president has delayed that plan till July 5th. And he says the reason for that delay is that he will give Congress an attempt to move forward on this supplemental funding, but also on other legislation that he wants to close what they view are, are as loopholes in the immigration system that are really behind the migration wave. But theoretically, if the House and the Senate don't pass some kind of legislation on this, President Trump could then decide that he's going to go forward with these with these big raids that he's been talking about. I think we can expect that these raids will go forward one way or another. The question is, when will that happen and in what form? Is the administration still determined to do it in a kind of shock and awe way that they think will deliver a deterrent value and will send a tough message that if you bring a child and, and you're released into the United States that you can't just abscond and go underground? Or are they going to try to move forward in a, a more deliberate way, in a way that seeks to maybe avoid some of the controversies that we saw? The administration goes back and forth. And we know that the president views, you know, toughness on immigration as very central to his to his campaign. So I think we can expect that these raids will happen at some point. And while all of this is happening, we just saw that the head of Customs and Border Patrol stepped down. Why and what does that mean for, for the future of this agency that's in charge of this problem? That's right. We continue to see this kind of revolving door at the highest levels of the Department of Homeland Security in the middle of this crisis. And what we saw yesterday was the current acting head of U.S. Customs and Border Protection, John Sanders. He abruptly resigned yesterday after little more than two months in the job. And Mark Morgan, the current acting director of ICE, who has been on the job for less than two months, is going to be moved over to head CBP and become the country's top border security official. 
And I think what that reflects is that the president has this desire for what he calls toughness. He's frustrated with the state of affairs at the border, and he sees figures on television as commentators and analysts who uh, make an impression on him. And he is determined to bring them into the government and place them at the highest levels of these agencies. But then quickly, he runs into problems or they have conflicts. So we continue to see this rotating cast of characters and and almost a Game of Thrones type environment uh, at DHS. And the, you know, the result is, is this perception of instability um, within the agency that is responsible for protecting the U.S.'s borders as well as um, you know, the country from, from terrorist attacks. And that really is an unprecedented situation for DHS. Nick Miroff covers immigration enforcement and the Department of Homeland Security for The Post. On Wednesday afternoon, the Senate voted to approve $4.6 billion in emergency border spending. Their vote sets up a clash with the House, which passed a different version of the bill on Tuesday, a version that would force the Trump administration to do more to meet the basic needs of migrant children. It's uncertain how or if the House and the Senate would resolve their differences before Congress breaks for Fourth of July recess. Before she was a senator, who was Kirsten Gillibrand? Kirsten Gillibrand was a conservative Democrat in the House of Representatives. That's Robert Samuels. And I'm a national political reporter for The Post. And he's been looking into the political evolution of presidential candidate Kirsten Gillibrand. Because she was in a rural district, she made sure she had very conservative-leaning credentials. And the two most notable things were, one, that she had a very anti-immigration stance, and two, was the fact that she was very pro-gun. She came from a family of hunters, and that was a really important part of her culture. And so for most of the positions that the NRA was advocating for the time, she was supporting all of them. But then, at some point, she changes her view on guns. What happened? So it's this really fascinating story of a political turnaround. So in 2008, Hillary Clinton, who's the senator of New York at the time, gets appointed to become secretary of state. And David Patterson, who's the governor... She is dynamic. She is articulate had to fill in the Senate role temporarily. Now, David Patterson was from Brooklyn, and he had a hard time trying to persuade voters upstate that he was a politician who cared about them. And so what he wanted to do was to find someone from upstate to help supplement some of his political challenges and to say to them, I want to make sure your voices are represented in the Senate. I am appointing her to the United States Senate, representing to New York today. And he found that solution in Kirsten Gillibrand. Please welcome our next senator and current Congresswoman, Kirsten Gillibrand. Thank you, Governor, for this incredible honor. And so from that position as a senator, she starts being exposed to people outside of her more rural districts of upstate New York, and she starts talking to people from New York City. Yeah, and uh, she gets appointed to this position, and people within the city are sort of horrified by it. 
One of the biggest hang-ups for liberal New Yorkers could be Gillibrand's endorsement by the National Rifle Association. Because she was so pro-gun and so anti-immigrant, and so the moment she gets elected, she starts facing a good deal of ridicule about it. Newspapers start doing these cartoons of her as Annie Oakley. You have a representative who is from Long Island whose husband was shot in a mass shooting on a train station who vows to run against Kirsten Gillibrand if she doesn't change her position on guns. And then at her very first press conference where she's being announced, Chuck Schumer takes the microphone and tells a crowd of reporters that he is confident that over time, Kirsten Gillibrand will change her position on guns. I know that there are certain issues where Kirsten and I are going to disagree. Perhaps the starkest contrast is on guns. I come from Brooklyn. Kirsten represents a very rural district upstate with no large cities. And I'm confident that as Kirsten comes to see the cities of the state, and sees the problem of gun violence there, her views will evolve to reflect the whole state. And this is naturally part of the process. And then how does that actually start to happen? Now, around this time, there was a very concerning shooting that happened in a club in Brooklyn. And a girl was shot. She eventually died, and her name was Nyasia Pryor-Yard. At the time that that happened, the Daily News challenged Kirsten Gillibrand to go to the school and speak with people who had known this girl and see if she could come out of it thinking the same way that she did about guns. Did Senator Gillibrand do that? She agreed to do it. The principal gathered her students. She asked them to come up with some questions. And she also asked the mother of Nyasia Pryor-Yard to meet with Senator Gillibrand and tell her story in hopes that something might happen to make Kirsten Gillibrand change her mind. Tell me a little bit about Nyasia. Well, Nyasia was an honor roll student, um, about to graduate high school. So I was able to speak with Jennifer Pryor, who was Nyasia Pryor's mom, and we had a conversation about her daughter. Um, about to go to college in the fall of 2009 when she was murdered in a club on Classen and Fulton. You find out that this woman who's the new senator of New York wants to come to the high school and meet you. Right. Tell me about what went through your head. Um... At first, nothing, because, you know, she was uh, pro-guns and and I don't see, like, how you can be pro-guns. I'm from Brooklyn. It shouldn't be any of that. Like, we don't have any deer in Brooklyn. How did this meeting affect Gillibrand's views? So she gets there, and uh, Nyasia's mom, Jennifer, she holds a photograph. She tells her about her daughter, who Jennifer would say, my daughter is a triple threat. She was brilliant. She was beautiful. And she was black. I was, um, let's say, optimistic because um, maybe it could have uh, shined a light on someone else to, to have a better situation than I did or a better outcome. So I was open. And uh, she tells this story and says, you know, 
where we're from, we don't have gun ranges. We don't have hunters. There are no deer to shoot. And yet kids are getting shot. And, you know, trying to open up our eyes to see, like, things that you may endure upstate is not the same as we endure down here. And the reason they're getting shot is because they're getting guns from areas where, like, the places you're from, and you need to do something. So the law should be a little different. And um, you need to have, like, permits and background checks and people accountable for lost guns, stolen guns. And she has that meeting, and student after student tells her about what it's like to grow up in Brooklyn, to be afraid. One woman tells her that she's so afraid of her kid being shot that she doesn't allow the child to take out the garbage, that she Mm. wouldn't even do that. And... According to everyone who was at that meeting, you saw something change within Kirsten Gillibrand. And she gets up there and she says, I think I'm wrong, essentially. Hi, Robert. How are you? Hey, I'm well. How are you doing? Great. And you've talked to Senator Gillibrand about this meeting and how it affected her and what she did after that, what did she say about this? I just, I mean, I had to meet Nyasha's family and her school community. When she thinks of that time, you can tell that there was something that happened that really affected her that day. And I needed the people that I was meeting to know that they could trust me with her memory. So Gillibrand leaves that meeting, and then what does she end up doing? So she leaves the meeting and she says she's going to draft legislation that will tackle gun trafficking in the country. And she also tells the students that she was so impressed by them that she was going to start an internship program at her Senate office in the name of Nyasia. The truth is you have to recognize when you're wrong. I mean, it's not that difficult. And then she also uses it as a way of making herself seem like a singular, distinguishable candidate in this crowded field of Democrats. When you're wrong, you need to know it. And when you're not where you need to be because you can't serve everyone, then you need to change. And it means you need to have humility. She says that this moment was the moment when she realized that she was wrong about gun control. It's evidence that she has the humility to learn that she was wrong. And also that she is the most equipped person in the democratic field to be able to have gun control legislation pass through and to sign it because she too was a conservative who didn't understand the impact of urban gun violence and she could take those stories to any place in the country and connect with people mother to mother in the same way that the mothers at Nazareth High School tried to connect with her. When you talk to a mom and a dad who lost their teenage daughter because she was at a party with friends and a stray bullet hit her and killed her and you meet her whole class. So you've heard her tell this story about Naisha Pryor and her family more than once. Yeah. I mean, it's a continual story she she's tells at town halls. She says it at stump speeches. Not only do you immediately know that you were wrong, but you know that you have to do something about it. That young woman, Naisha Pryor Yard, should not have died. And she should not, her death should not be in vain. So I believe... The things are changing. She's constantly bringing this up as a very important moment in her political career. And when Senator Gillibrand actually drafted the legislation against gun trafficking, Jennifer Pryor, she stood behind her as she said, this is what I'm going to do. And then she never heard from Kirsten Gillibrand again. Really? 
No. And she doesn't fully understand why. She lives in the same house that she did when her daughter died. She has the same phone number that's attached to the house that uh, she gave Senator Gillibrand. And she thought that she would be one of those people who would go with her and tell her daughter's story and try to help her pass this legislation. And uh, Jennifer Pryor says that phone call, that effort to reach out, never happened. When did you find out that she was still talking about meeting you and your daughter? Um, well, recently, yeah. um, when you called. Had you heard from her since? Nope. No. Tell me how you feel about that. You have to follow through on some things. If it moved you the way you feel and say, you need to follow up on some things. What has actually been achieved in terms of the legislation that, that Senator Gillibrand was pushing? It hasn't passed. Uh, she's put it in. She's filed it every year. And uh, it hasn't been able to get through Congress. So after talking to Naisha's mom, you went back to Senator Gillibrand to basically say, like, hey, this woman says that you haven't reached out to her in a long time and that she feels really disappointed with what came of this kind of momentous meeting. What did Gillibrand say about that? Have you have you spoken to the family since? Um, I don't think so. I named the bill after Niasia. Um When I did introduce the gun trafficking bill, we named it after Niasia. Um And um, I believe we've invited them to Washington before. Um, I think we've invited them um, to different things, but I don't know that they've ever come. Mm-hmm. But you'd have to ask Glenn. He'd know for sure. She had very little to say. She acknowledged that she hadn't seen Jennifer since that press conference. She also believes that if she were the president of the United States, she'd have a better shot at fulfilling her promise to Nyasha's mom. Is that true? If Kirsten Gillibrand were president, would she be able to pass legislation that would enact those changes in gun laws that she'd been pushing? I mean, it's impossible to say whether or not it's true, but it's really hard to believe that the roadblocks that prohibit any gun control legislation from being passed in this country would magically change with her as president. I think it's also important to note that Kirsten Gillibrand has been telling this story in the Senate since it happened, and it has not been able to persuade enough senators to actually pass the legislation. In some ways, I find this story really surprising, right? The fact that Senator Gillibrand's office never really followed up, never kept in contact with Jennifer Pryor. But on the other hand, in some ways, it feels very unsurprising because it feels like politicians are always doing this, carting out stories about people that they meet on the campaign trail or constituents who have some kind of tragic story that they can talk about publicly, but then don't do anything to really change this person's life. One thing that I think is really important about this story from the perspective of Jennifer Pryor and the families who gathered to talk to Senator Gillibrand is they left that meeting with a sense of hope where there was very little hope because this conservative senator looked them in the eyes and raised up their cause and had them believe they were worth her time and had their children believe that she would do something for them. She would allow an entryway into politics through offering this internship program. And 10 years later, so much of that hope had been whittled. The program that 
the Gillibrand office set up. It took more than a month for the Gillibrand campaign and her Senate office to say that they could only account for one student who was ever able to use that program. For Jennifer Pryor herself, it's a very hard, tough, and confusing road for her. She wants to hold on to that hope. And at the same time, the senator's office, as far as she could tell, has never been able to get in contact with her. Those who know Kirsten Gillibrand say that something like this, her being confronted with a situation and then her changing her mind about something, is not an unusual situation, that she's a very from-the-gut type of person. And I think this case is another piece of evidence, the type of leader that she would be, someone who would make quick decisions and someone who might have some questionable follow-ups. Robert Samuels is a national political reporter for The Post. The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Chasing the Moon on PBS, the epic story of the moon landing. This is the most audacious undertaking that man has ever attempted. It's as if you were there when it happened. I understood what it meant to smell fear. Experience the making of history. The computer was overloading. It was touch and go. Like you never have before. Everybody felt they had a piece of it. And they did. Chasing the Moon on American Experience. Premieres Monday, July 8th at 9, 8 central, only on PBS. And now, one more thing. Why some millennials are putting pizza on their wedding registries. There has been a real shift in the way that couples are um, thinking about their weddings and about their futures. And we're seeing that particularly in the ways that they ask for gifts, um, what they ask for and how they ask for it. Abba Batarai is a business reporter at The Post. 15% of 25 to 34-year-olds are living together before they get married these days. And that's up from 12% a decade ago. This means that they already have all of the towels and the kitchenware that they would need. In some cases, they might have two of everything because they've been living separately before they moved in together. Um, and so they're just not seeing a lot of need for bed sheets and linens and, you know, a second set of fancy china that they may or may not ever use. At the same time, they're valuing experiences more than things. So we see them wanting to go on a fabulous honeymoon instead or save for a house or a down payment. Um, and so this, is, this has become a way for them to do that and for retailers and other types of companies to cash in. We're seeing everything from honeymoon funding to home down payments, wedding expenses. Some people are asking for funding for fertility treatments, adoption costs. Um, or even contributions to their future children's college funds. And companies have started paying attention. Couples can register for gift cards for Airbnb and Uber and stuff that's even weirder. So Domino's Pizza two years ago began allowing couples to register for pizzas through their website. You can create a wedding registry just like you would um, at Target or at Williams-Sonoma, and you just ask for different packages, like the honeymoon pizza package. The idea is that people will buy you gifts to eat pizza at Domino's. And yes, putting pizza on your registry can look like kind of a gag. But Abba says that the shift to less glamorous wedding gifts is often rooted in economic anxiety. Millennials now have $1.5 trillion in student debt, and that is a figure that is growing, and young people are burdened by debt in a way that we've never seen before. And so um, this has become, kind of sadly, a way for them to um, offset the costs of other things that they might need in their lives. 
Abba Bhattarai is a business reporter at The Post. That's it for today's episode. If you like listening to Post Reports and want to know how to support the work that we do here, please consider subscribing to The Washington Post. We're offering listeners a special discount on a digital subscription. Get unlimited access to our website and apps for less than a dollar a week. Sign up at postreports.com offer. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.